Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we continue our series on the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Life in, in Jesus' day, and we can sort of argue that that happens today as well, is that there was a regular practice of favoritism. And that was favoritism not only uh, judicially, not only in society, and not only in the political sense of who was the favorite, who wasn't, but it was also in the spiritual sense. That there was a, uh, there was a kind of a hierarchy, if you will, spiritually in the Greek world in terms of those who knew, those who were in the know, so to speak, and those who were not in the know. So if you were not in the know, then you had absolutely no chance of any sort of connection to God, no, no opportunity to get to know him better and no way that you could absolutely be assured of, of, of salvation in the sense of the way that the Greek would understand salvation. And so if you weren't in the know, so, so being not in the know meant that you did not have the intellectual prowess to, to read God's word or to, to understand God's word, uh, sort of read between the lines, if you will. And so what, what John is reminding the reader and us is that Jesus is the real light, and as the real light, he gives light to everyone, that there is no distinction, if you will. There is no separation of who benefits from the light and who does not. And so what he, say, he says is, is that he was in the world, the world was made through him, that's the connection of, uh, of the logos, of the Christ, uh, uh, in terms of uh, creation, and yet what was the reaction of the world to him the world did not, what? The world did not know him. So we need to talk a little bit about the idea of knowing in the Greek mind. The Greek word for know is uh, to gnosko. But there's two aspects of knowing that the Greek would have, uh, would have appreciated. So the first kind of knowing is an intellectual knowing. Uh, we, we refer to that theologically as the natural knowledge of God. And what the natural knowledge of God basically is, is the idea that you can look around in creation and derive from your experience in creation that there must be something or someone greater than us who's running things, right? So anybody who has ever studied uh, uh, how things work in the world, um, I remember seeing a, a presentation by one of the astronauts who was up in the uh, up in the space uh, the space thing. What's the space thing called? Yeah, the space station. Yes, here I. I uh, what happens when I am thinking that I'm going into okay Star Trek, Star Wars? You know, I'm kind of running running through my brain. The, st- the space station, International Space Station, and he took a million pictures. That was one of his things. I think Jeff Williams is his name. He's actually a Lutheran, a member at uh, Gloria Day Lutheran down in Nassau Bay near, near NASA. And he did this presentation of, uh, with all these pictures that he took of the earth being round. So whoever is a flat earth person, that sort of uh, kicked that uh, theory out the window. Um, but, uh, but all these kinds of things. And in his presentation, he said, you can't be up in space and see the wonders of the universe and not be struck by the fact of how tiny we are, of how so- in some sense insignificant we are compared to how grand and majestic God's creation is. Well, the natural knowledge of God by itself would lead us to at least contemplate the idea or entertain the idea that there's something or someone greater than us running this. And so Romans picks this theme up in Romans 1, 19 to 20, where Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. That's to people because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now, the difficulty or the dilemma that that natural knowledge of God creates is that if that's the only thing you know about God, that he's this all-powerful God, 
that he's the creator of the world, that he sustains life, that he uh, maintains the order or the balance of chaos and order in the world. If that's all you know about God, how do you ever come to know if that God loves you? Could you derive from your experience of him as the creator that he loves you? That's a different way of asking it. No, why not? You have to be told through his word, through, you have, it has to be shared with you, it has to be verbalized to you from the gospels and the, and the word. Yeah, because the problem is, is that if all you know about God is that he's all powerful and he's running things in the world, how do you make sense of the fact that some things in the world go well and some things don't? That there are, there are uh, places in the world where uh, life is productive and, and crops are grown and, and the soil is fertile and the rains come when they need to and all those things. And then there's other parts of the world where people are dying by the millions and there's famine and earthquake and floods and tsunamis and all these terrible things. If, if all you know about God is that he's powerful and he's running things, you would look at nature and say, well, there's something wrong with that God, right? Or that that God only cares about this group of people, but he doesn't care about that group of people based on calamities that might occur in the world or not in the world. Does that make sense? So what Paul, if you read further in Romans, what Paul uh, describes is that the limits of the natural knowledge of God is such that if you don't have some additional information about God that he loves you and that he cares about you and that he, he, he desires a relationship with you, but all you think of him as this God who makes things happen, then what Paul talks about is that that leads to idolatry. Because in idolatry, what happens is people are worshiping the created things rather than the creator. And there's a t- an attempt then to try to manipulate the God into doing the things for him that you want him to do, i.e. you want it to rain on the crops. You want the, there not to be flooding. You want, the, you want to somehow convince the God that you are a good enough person in order for him to bless you with uh, benefits or perks or favors that would come to those who do his bidding. And so that's where you get uh, cultures where they don't know of the love of God, they just know of this great powerful being, sort of like the Wizard of Oz, you know, sort of like that, all right? And what that leads people to think is, well, if I live a good life, if I'm obedient to the rituals, if I follow everything that the religion tells me to do and I do it perfectly, then the blessing will come, right? That says nothing about the idea that God is a loving God. So the other side of knowing beyond the natural knowledge of God, which kind of tends to be uh, an intellectual knowledge in some sense, is the knowing that is described with the word relationship, okay? In the old King James version of the Bible, how many of you grew up on King James, by the way? Yeah, we have a lot of King James converts in here, right? (laughs) Right, okay? In the old King James version, when King Je- the King James English wanted to describe the sexual intimacy between a husband and the wife, the King James Version would use the word no. So in Genesis, for example, it would say, and Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. I remember when I was a kid thinking, now no, new, hmm, new baby, how does that go together, right? <laughs> They didn't cover that in seventh grade health class, you know. They just didn't quite get to that. But, but what, it, what it's talking about is that intimacy, that sense of, of, of the most intimate connection that the husband and the wife could have or that a person could have is what is being described here in terms of that person's relationship with God. So when, when John says, he came into the world, yet the world did not know him. 
It wasn't so much the idea that the world didn't know him intellectually, though that could certainly be a part of it. There were people that just rejected the idea that God created the world and that God was running things in some sense. But there certainly was this idea of refusing to have faith in him, to refusing to receive the love that he offered through his son Jesus. And because of that, then they did not know him. Now, when it talks about the world, the world is also a common theme in the book of John. So what do you think he's talking about when he says the world? Because we, t- we say that word all the time today, too. We say, oh, the world. Well, what are we talking about? The world. Yeah, but it's, it's all people in the sense of a mindset that rejects God both as creator and sustainer, as well as the one who offers us love and salvation through his son. So the world is, it's a kind of a, uh, it's certainly a collective sort of synonym for many people, but it really has more to do with the idea of those who reject uh, Christ as opposed to uh, those who would uh, accept him or receive him. Okay. So what he says then is it wasn't only the world that did not receive him, but also who else? His own people. Remember? So verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. All right. So, you know, we remember that from the, from the gospels that Jesus's initial thrust of ministry was to whom? To Israel, to the Jewish people. He was raised that, so that would make perfect sense that he would. And uh, most all of his uh, disciples were also Jewish people, so that would make sense that he would have done that. But he received really a mixed response, all right? So there's three different uh, responses there. First, he was rejected by those who believed that they were already chosen. We talked about this quite a bit last week, didn't we? That that the, the people who believed they were already chosen, that would have been the Israelite people, right? The, the Jewish people of his day. They believed that if you're already chosen, why do you need forgiveness? And for that matter, why do you even need a savior? You might need a Messiah, but why would you need a savior? Because a savior comes to do what? To save, yes. And we remember when, when Jesus, what, before he was born, the angel came to Joseph and said, you will call his name what? Jesus, because he will what? He will save his people from their sins. Well, if I'm already chosen, I don't need that. So the preconceived idea already on the minds of the Jewish, many of the Jewish people, particularly the, the Jewish leadership was, uh, I'm chosen. I already have those benefits. I'm already in the family. I'm already in the kingdom. I don't need to uh, have uh, Jesus come and offer that to me. The second uh, group of people rejected him because their expectation of what a Messiah was going to do did not include what God sent Jesus to do. And we see that little wisps of that in the disciples' response to Jesus in terms of when he starts to tell them that his uh, role or his task now is to be rejected and arrested and suffer and die and, of course, then rise again. And at least one of the disciples responded immediately to that. Who was that? Peter. What did Peter say about that? Yeah, over my dead body, that's not going to happen, right? Now, you know, again, Peter was very loyal to Jesus and, and very tight with Jesus and did not want to see his friend uh, suffer, but that would have clearly gotten in the way of, uh, of Jesus's mission. And so, you know, they were expecting a political or, a, or a, uh, uh, an army kind of guy, a warrior who's going to come in and drive out, uh, drive out the Romans. And then finally, he was accepted by those who's, who realized that they were in need of God's mercy and they couldn't achieve their salvation by how good they were. And so we talked a little bit last week too about the, uh, the remember the parable of the, of the Pharisee and the, and the publican or the Pharisee and the uh, tax collector in the temple, that the, the difference between the prayers that they prayed where the Pharisee said, you know, Lord, thank you that I am not like this, uh, this, uh, this guy over here who clearly 
is not uh, a good Jew and who clearly is not uh, to be included in the kingdom. And then he listed all the good things that he did. Remember all the good things that he did? He tithed, right? He came to synagogue or temple all at different times that he needed to. He followed all the laws. If he was Lutheran, what would he have added? <laughs> what I'd have the catechism, yes. And I still have the blue catechism on my shelf. I still have it. See, so there's all different kinds of things, right, that we sort of take pride in and that we say these are all good things, right? It would have been easy to do that. Uh, and, and basically, the, you know, what he's saying is I'm, you know, up here and this guy's down here. What was the prayer of the uh, tax collector? God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. That's the prayer. And so then Jesus says in the parable, he says, who do you think walked away from the temple that day justified or forgiven? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so there, there, I think that the, the lesson there is that when people assumed already that they knew why the Messiah would come and, and sort of superimpose that expectation on him, then they were not, their hearts were not open to him, but it was those who truly realized their spiritual plight without him. They were, they were overjoyed at the prospect of uh, being received by him. So then he uses some, some, uh, some verbs there to kind of describe, uh, I don't know if it's a sequence, but it's sort of the, uh, the good things that happened as a result of engaging with Jesus. And so he uses the words there in verse 12, but to all who receive him, who believe in his name, they become what? they become children of God. Absolutely. So, so we think in terms of the word receive and believe. Now, one of the things that is kind of interesting about some of the differences in the denominational approaches to some of these words is that there is a distinction between the way Lutherans talk about it and people who let's see, I don't want to pick on Baptists, but I'm just going to use that because that's a good example of what we see a lot in the Bible belt. Lutherans for the most part in their theology will use the word receive Jesus as your savior and Lord. In Baptist theology, you'll hear what? I accept Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Now, is there anybody in here that gets nervous about that? Besides me? <laughs> Probably not. Because most of us would say, well, accept or receive, there's it's no big difference. There's no difference. And really, truly, I, I think there probably isn't. All right? But, here's the but. I'll lay this on you in terms of where Lutherans, at least Lutheran theology is coming from. Okay. If I accept something, it does suggest action on my part to take hold of something that is offered to me. If I receive it, there is no action on my part. So I am a passive partner in this. All right, so let's just illustrate it. Everybody put your hand up like this. Well, you guys really want handouts, don't you? Okay, so let's pretend that this is the good news of salvation that comes through Christ. In Lutheran theology, reception means that God comes to me and he says, I love you and I want you to be my own. Now, did I do anything to receive that? No, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. So holding your hand out, though, is our natural spiritual posture. You're born into the world like this. And any of you that have had little infants know this is exactly how little infants are. They're like this, uh, like this, and like this. Right? In some sense, it's like the baby bird is like this. Okay, that's just a natural posture, all right, in terms of our relationship with God. So the idea of reception means that God comes to me and gives that to me with no action on my part to earn it, to deserve it, to take hold of it 
What I've done is I've received it. And what I haven't done is this. Because of the sinful nature that we're born with, from a Lutheran perspective, this is kind of what we teach, is that the capacity of the sinful nature is that I do have the ability, if anything, to do is to reject it or to say no to it or to refuse to receive it. Okay? Now, is this like a fine line that nobody cares about? Well, in some sense, it, you know, sometimes what happens, and this happens more a lot in the South because of the, the uh, decision theology that's a part of, of a Baptist life and church of Christ, not church of Christ, but, but kind of the non-denominational life that a lot of people are participate in theologically, is that, that, that there is this idea that how you come to faith is that you made a decision to come to faith. You invited Jesus into your life. You, you can probably remember the day and the moment when you asked Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. And that works for everybody in the room except those of us that were baptized as infants. Correct? Yeah. So those of us that are baptized as infants probably have very little memory of that happening. How many of you were baptized as infants? How many of you remember that happening? You might have a Polaroid. <laughs> I have a black and white Polaroid. Does anybody in here know what a Polaroid is? Or at least, we, at least we know what that is. All right, so I have that picture. So that's my link to that. That's how I know, okay, it happened. Well, they said it happened. I guess I have to trust that. Okay, but see, that's that, that's that part of it where if I'm receiving it, receiving it is not age conditional. Does that make sense? See, see, I can receive it as an infant, or I can receive it as a seventh grader, or I can receive it as a, uh, as a, f- a full-blown adult. The receiving is not about how old I am, how smart I am, what my intellectual or mental capacities are. It isn't. It's about what? God doing this for me. If it's about some action on my part intellectually, then infant baptism holds no water. Right? Yeah. Because I need to be old enough to understand what I'm taking hold of, and I need to understand that and appreciate that and say, okay, there's the Jesus, and I need the Jesus, and so I will ask Jesus into my life and accept him as my Savior and Lord. Okay? So, yeah, it's kind of a fine line, right? But you can sort of at least now appreciate what kind of is underneath it as to why it's a bigger deal in Lutheran world maybe than others. Yeah, Carl, I've ignored you long enough. I was baptized as an infant. Yeah. I was 32 years old when I finally quit saying no. So God worked. So your point was I kept turning it over yes. and saying, okay, I've got it, but. Yes. But. Yes. And you know, the aspect of receiving. Yeah. The aspect of receiving doesn't mean that we have it all together. It doesn't mean that we have all the answers. It doesn't mean that we can explain everything that is. But as you've often heard me say, for those people that were baptized as infants, what that means is that before you could talk, God said, You are my beloved. Boy, that's pretty powerful to have the seed of that planted inside of your heart and your mind and your soul where there is a knowing before you intellectually know. There's a relationship before you can talk. And there is a consistent flow of God's love, that unconditional love and grace that we have, irrespective of how the human experience of that loving goes. Because not everybody grows up in a loving family. Not everybody grows up with parents who like are 100% consistent and loving and being there and being available and doing all those things that we say are important for kids to have. Not, not everybody got that. But you get it from God. See, before you can talk. So does that make sense? So, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to make a super hyper deal about this. At the same time, I'm kind of feel super hyper about it. Um, and partly it's again, because it's the assurance aspect of it. See, the assurance of, 
of the basis then of your relationship with God is not based on whether or not you made a decision to do that or not. Or were you sincere enough when you did it? It's not about that. If anything, it's how sincere God was when he did it. And he was pretty darn sincere when he did it. Okay, make sense? Yeah. Yeah, Gabriel. I have a question. If uh, the salvation received when uh, we were baptized as infants, yes. doesn't that make it an action on our part of, of babies that our parents had as baptized? And for those that never got baptized, then they miss out of it. Yeah. So, okay, let me, let me make sure that I'm hearing you in your question. Okay, are you asking that being baptized is an action? Uh, from what I hear you saying, it sounded like we receive it. We receive it. When we're infants. Yes. And, and the Bible says that salvation of Jesus Christ can choose a life to every man on earth. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. So here's the way to think about that. Okay, do you understand what he's asking? Okay, it's this idea that salvation is for everyone. I, if I'm, you'll have to tell me if I'm not getting it yet. Salvation is for everyone, and yet there are people that receive it and people that do not. So then how can it be for everyone? Is that what you're saying? Kind of. How, how do we take out the, the action in the population? Yeah. Okay, so let me see if I can... I can see we're ditching this for today, right? <laughs> okay, this is all right. This is good. I'm the one that's stepped into it. Okay, so, all right. So, uh, yeah, I'll try to get myself out of this. Um, if this is my natural posture toward God, mean, that means that I come into the world loved by him, but not necessarily saved by him, Salvation comes by grace through faith. So what does faith do? Faith trusts. Faith, faith is in the relationship. It's hard to quantify that in terms of the infant's experience of that, correct? Because the brain's not developed and we don't know everything, the mystery of that that's going on. So the best way to say it is, is that, that when, at the moment of baptism... For that infant, that infant now is in a relationship of being loved by God and has faith in God, even though the faith is not intellectual. It's the knowing of being known as opposed to the knowing of knowing what you know. So maybe a way to describe it is, is that what happens at baptism, if it's an infant, now if it's an adult, that's a different thing, okay? But if it's an, I mean, it's a different uh, sequence. But if you're an infant, um, you, when, you, when you come to that faith, it's an immature faith. A way to, to describe it would be a seed of faith is being planted in that child's heart and life. It's faith, but it's not mature in the sense of someone who has spent their life in the word, albeit struggling, Right but still is wrestling with it and it is growing and it is bearing fruit, but it's still faith. And so the idea is, is that when God comes to me and puts that faith in me, the question is, did I do anything to deserve it? Did I do anything to um, uh, help God along? No, I didn't do any of that because by virtue of my sinful nature, I'm not capable of it. See, when we come into the world, we have some spiritual problems that go along with our humanness. One is that we're spiritually blind, we're spiritually dead, and we're spiritually enemies of God. That's what we have going for us. Put that on your resume, why don't you, okay? Yeah. See, that's the problem. And so, how does that change? I'm standing there like this, I'm spiritually blind. I cannot see God at work. I'm spiritually dead. I don't have an impulse for him. And I'm spiritually hostile to God as his enemy. Now, he loves me, right? He still loves me. He wants me to be his own. 
But my inclination is to say, no, thank you. I can do just fine on my own. I don't need the love that you offer or I don't need it. I don't need the love in the way that you offer it. I don't need Jesus. I don't need faith. I don't need forgiveness. And when, when a person is baptized, all of that is attached to him. Let's use that word. But because I'm spiritually blind, dead, and enemy of God, I still have the capacity to do what? Say no. Does God love the people that say no to him? Absolutely. Absolutely. The question is, is that love like that going to save that person if that person rejects faith in Jesus? And the Bible would say no. And that will be, you know, when you think about the picture that is painted of Judgment Day, where Jesus separates the believers from the unbelievers, the sheep from the goat, so to speak, right? And he talks to both groups and he talks to the believers and he says, oh, you did all these wonderful things because you loved me and that kind of thing. Come into, the, come into the, the, the place that I have prepared for you from the beginning of time. And then he moves to the unbelievers and what a sad, difficult moment that's going to be for God when he says, depart from me. I mean, how does that even, how do we even put that together with this idea that God loves everybody and yet he's able to say to those that don't believe him, depart from me. What a horrendous moment for God to have to deal with. He wishes it wasn't the case because he's all love. Yeah, yeah. So I hope that that confuses you less. Yeah, Carol. Okay, so infant baptism. So what happened? I mean, it basically, the parents have to be believers. And so they're actually bringing the child to be baptized. What if they're not? What? What about those that don't? <laughs> Who got us into this? I know. I know. I know. Okay. So let's go to the first premise is that they would have to be believers. They would not have to be believers. They probably wouldn't if they weren't. Okay. But the effectiveness of the baptism or the power of the baptism resides in God's word and promise, not in the level of the faith or even the existence of the faith of the parents. And where that shows up a lot in Lutheran world, maybe Catholic world too, is when the parents want to get the baby baptized so that they can get grandma and grandpa off their case. So if you're the grandma and grandpa, I want you to stay on their case, right? Because it's the right thing to do. It's a good thing to do. But the sad part of it is, is that that probably means that that child will not grow up in the church, will not come to Sunday school, will not be immersed in the word. That's probably the case, but not always the case. Okay. So we always pray for the the uh, whatever power can be leveraged by grandparents is a good thing. It's not manipulative. It's a good thing because we're talking here about uh, faith and salvation and growth and that sort of thing. Okay. So that's the first part of that question. Okay. Now the second part of your question is what about what? What about people who don't bring their children to be baptized because okay. they're probably not believers, right. then it's, it's up to Christians to, you know, show them the way or, you know. Can be. So, yeah. So the other piece to this is, and again, this is in our Lutheran understanding of this. So I'm, I'm working out of that lens and that bias, okay, is that salvation comes by uh, what we call the means of grace, So baptism isn't the only means of grace. Exposure to the word, we're using the word word here, logos, the power of God is in the word and the Holy Spirit works through that word to bring people to faith. That almost always is the way it is with older, with adults and older youth. 
is what? They're exposed to the Word. So the Word comes to them in some way, uh, a Young Life Bible study or a, a Camp Lone Star Bible study or a youth group. I was invited to a youth group and we did all these cool things and we read the Bible. I, and, and so what happens is the Holy Spirit working through that Word does what? It starts to engender faith in that person. And then if that person hasn't been baptized, then that person says what? And I want to be baptized. Or someone says, it would be a really good thing to be baptized. Okay. So baptism in the case of an older person comes after exposure to the word. For infants, baptism is the initial entree into the word. And then we hope that there will be a nurturing of that word. Okay. Good. Excellent. Okay. We've got many questions here and I'm looking at the clock. I've got late service. So I'm just putting you on notice, right? Okay. We're good yet. Yeah. So what happens if someone is baptized in your Lutheran world? Yes. In the Lutheran world. Yes. And that person then goes into a Baptist non-denominational. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, uh, there must be more to the question. She's asking if someone is, uh, let's say, uh, baptized in Lutheran, uh, Lutheran faith, if, to use that word, and then later in life goes into Baptist or non-denominational or something like that. And, and so I, they, it happens a lot, so I don't know what you're asking. I guess I'm asking that they're over here, they're receiving it. Yes. And then they move to accepting it. Yes. And I think there's a conflict there. Well, okay, so there's not a conflict as far as God is concerned. There's only a conflict as far as people like me who make a big deal about it are concerned. <laughs> I mean, it re- really, it actually is. So, uh, you know, I've got, like, I've got in my family, uh, there's five of us kids. Um, two of us stayed Lutheran. And the other three uh, married people that were uh, Bible church people. Okay? So when, uh, then, then they all had kids. Well, then when they were kids, I mean little babies, they said to me, we would like it if you would baptize our kids. Now, they did not do that because that's what their church teaches. They did that to get Uncle Jim off their case, right? <laughs> And to some degree, their grandma, and to some degree, this is how my sisters and my brother were raised. And so there is still some DNA in there that appreciates that. But the church that they're a part of, at at the very least, the church that they were part of acknowledged that the baptism took place. They didn't discount it, but they also said that will, it's going to be really important when that child gets older to make the decision for himself. So there's kind of a, a little bit of a acceptance, rejection in the same moment, right? So I baptized all those kids. Later, then in their lives, they said, I think it's time for me to make that choice, that decision. I want to invite Jesus into my life. And their church said, well, if you want to do that, then you you do what's called believer's baptism, which is that you came to faith and then you got baptized as an act of obedience, not because God's doing anything in the baptism. It's because that's what God has commanded his people to do. Go, therefore, uh, preach the gospel and baptize everybody. Okay, so that's, that's what that approach was. So I have to admit, when they did that and were very excited about that, I felt a little sting internally. Does that make sense? Yeah, I did because I thought, well, what do you think that, you know, I kind of got a little uppity, (laughs) frankly, I did. Okay, I did. But I had to remember that's their tradition. That's their church. I'm so happy that they're Christian, they're believers, they're in a Bible teaching church, all those kinds of things. Do I wish it was like Lutheran? Yes, but okay. Okay, you know, and they're all doing great and they're marrying Christian, you know, men and women, that sort of, there's all that good stuff's going on. They haven't renounced their faith just because they're not Lutheran anymore. But (laughs) 
So, but how do I how do I sort of how do I sort of um, put that together in my Lutheran sort of way of thinking? Is that in my thought is when I did the baptism initially, that's the one that took. <laughs> that I mean, okay. And everything after that is a ceremonial washing. Now, I'm not going to say that to them. I hope they're not listening to the podcast today. <laughs> okay? I'm not going to say that to them. I'm not going to disparage that experience that they had. Because, again, frankly, when you're baptized as an infant and you don't remember it, you kind of wish you could go back to a time when you could remember something. You know, kind of a, a benchmark. And, and that's why confirmation's a big deal in the Lutheran church, because, okay, at eighth grade, I can go back and remember that. But that's not that confirmation didn't save me. That's not the moment when I came to faith. That's the moment when I learned and said I had learned, at least at the eighth grade level, of what it means to have that faith into which I was baptized. Okay? Yeah, the intellectual knowing, but the knowing knowing, the, the other part of Gnosko is that relationship knowing started way long time ago before I could talk. Before I could talk, I knew I was loved by God. Thankfully, I had parents and aunts and uncles and church, churches into which I was raised who reminded me of that. And so that's kind of what sponsors do. Yeah, we talk about that in terms of godparents and sponsors and all that in terms of Lutheran world. It's a big deal because what the sponsor is promising to do is to do what? Is to remind that child of their baptism and all the promises and benefits that went along with that and send money. <laughs> so, you know, that's a big deal. And if that doesn't happen, if that child isn't surrounded by that, then there's so many other voices in the world that will compete with that. And Lord knows we know that there are. And they're not just competing voices, but they're contradictory voices. So we need that sense of, you know, no matter what, you're still loved by God. No matter what, you're still his beloved. No matter what, no matter what, no matter what. Okay? Okay, other, yeah, Kathy. I'm confused about one point. Only one? Oh, yeah, 18 years of the Baptist Bible study. So are you, you're not saying that infant baptism guarantees salvation, are you? Hmm. That's the wrong, that's my only hiccup. Rest I'm good on. What infant baptism does is ushers the child into a relationship with God where that child is loved. If that child doesn't follow up on that or rejects it, they technically reject the salvation. If later in life the child says, I want nothing to do with God, I don't believe in him, then what we would say is, I would say this, God's Holy Spirit still working on that person. Holy Spirit doesn't give up. There's no giving up. Keep up the Holy Spirit, yes. Okay. And so I can't make that judgment. I can't do that. Okay? Okay, thank you. Oh, phew. I feel like I'm sort of like one of these moving targets, you know, and it's in a good way, of course. This is, I'm having a good time here. Yeah, Richard. You know, I'm just sitting here thinking, two knowings. Two knowings, yeah. Okay, the first one, the intellectual knowing, yeah. it's really based off of our concrete. I can prove it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The second sort is of. abstract. I mean, it's hard to prove that God made it, but you kind of have to conclude right. that. Yeah. In other words, it's here. But it's on the basis of what you see. Yeah. What you see. Right. Whereas, you know, our faith, you can't always see it. Mm -hmm. You can say, oh, yeah, that was, that's, good and it, that's evidence of faith, but it's yeah. abstract. Right. And people can argue that you're just deluded, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. So I think that's, to me, that's kind of the difference is yeah. concrete and abstract. Right. <coughs> when I first met Kathy, she was telling me all these things about the Catholic Church. Yeah. And it's a mystery, okay? Mm -hmm. And coming out of a Bible church, mystery was not a big deal. Right. You know, but I've, I've grown. Yes. I love this. Thanks to Kathy, you have grown. Okay. And then I go to an 18-year Bible study given by Baptist. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, it, 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 I, I, I want to be real careful that I'm not saying it's a right-wrong issue here. It is nuanced, okay? But nuances have 
have, have uh, implications. And at least from the perspective that we would take, I'd say we as Lutherans, is that for us, it's all about where do I get my assurance? And is the assurance ironclad? Yes, only if it's dependent totally on God's grace and what God does for me. If there's any nuance in there of me, what I do or what I contribute to it, then the problem is, is that introduces the possibility that what I did or my contribution wasn't good enough. It wasn't strong enough. It wasn't faithful enough. It wasn't sincere enough. And then if that's the case, what happens to my assurance? It gets shot at in some way. There's holes in it. And see, I think to some degree, while we are of relatively good, sound mind and body, I said relatively, yeah, um, maybe that isn't such a big deal. But I assure you later in life when mental capacity starts to wane, it's going to be a bigger deal. Because that's when you realize the beauty of the fact that it isn't about remembering stuff. Or that you remembered the Bible stories. Or you remembered even that God loved you. It's the important part is that God remembered you. And that God doesn't change his mind about you. And that staying in faith is a big chunk of this idea that I want to stay strong in remembering that. But the day might come when I can't remember even my name or your name or whatever. See, the coverage is still there. Okay, I want to get to questions that somebody raised their hand that hadn't asked yet. Yes, uh, I was uh, baptized a Catholic. Does the Lutheran Church recognize my baptism? Sure, of course, yeah. Because water and the Word. Water and the Word. If you're baptized in a Catholic, absolutely. Now, if you go to a Baptist church, that probably won't be, and you'll have to be rebaptized. But that's because the way Baptists look at uh, baptism is a different thing. Okay? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. See, that's our assurance. Yeah. Did you have your hand up or? Yeah. So I was born um, with six, uh, five brothers and sisters, very, very poor. Mm -hmm. And um, we had no car, mm -hmm. lived in the country, um, lived off of welfare. Uh -huh. And um, my mother, I slept with my mother from the time I was born until I graduated from high school. Okay. <laughs> That's how you did it. And so she would pray in, in the evening. Mm -hmm. so she, but what I remember is several different things. Number one, I remember um, maybe when I was like six years old, mm -hmm. neighbors came, came by and asked if anybody would like to go to their church with them. And I was the only one. I was about six years old. And I went. And I loved it. Mm -hmm. Came back, but I don't remember them ever taking me again mm -hmm. or anybody else, but that was my introduction. Then um, I remember... Uh, Can I ask you a favor? Can you save that story for next time? Thank you. Because I'm kind of glancing at the clock. My, my sort of ongoing nightmare, like, you know, we all have nightmares at times. Mines are on Saturday night when I have mine. And it's that uh, uh, Pastor Coleman is already walking down the aisle. <laughs> and I can't find my socks, okay? That's my... So I don't want to cut you off at all, okay? If you could save that story, because it sounds like it's a wonderful story. Okay, next week, Richard's taking the class. Now, you know, I had pre-planned what we would cover. Forget it. You're going to pick up where we left off. Is that okay to do that? Okay, if you would, and stretch it out all the way, like maybe get done with it. That'd be great. <laughs> I'm taking a little vacation next week, so that's, that's why I'm not here. But I'll be back the following week. Okay, very good. Let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. And thank you for the way that you speak to us in many ways. And 
most notably, one of the ways is through the word and through uh, baptism. We just thank you so much for that, Lord. That's such a blessing. But it's also one that's, uh, that's kind of misunderstood in the world that we live in today. So thank you for the opportunity to talk it through, to be assured by it, but to always know that it is your word and your promises that works in, uh, through your spirit in us. And that's the blessing that we have. It's a blessing where we're, we didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything for it. You gave it to us as a free gift. And Lord, we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith through the word and through conversations with each other like today. And we uh, look for opportunities to share that word with those around us whom you also love. Watch over us this week, dear Lord, until we're together again. And we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.